if I was an up and coming golfer and I had to go play those golf courses, I wouldn't want to play the game. So I think the design ideas are important is to remain on the path we're on right now where it's to make golf as simple as possible, to make it as fun as possible. And then the last thing I would do is I would have amateur rules brought in where if you hit it out of bounds, you get to drop it. If there's a stroke limit, you can pick it up. If you can't hit it out of a bunker, you can take a drop and, and it'd be a shot penalty or do something to where there's an amateur line out of rules where it reminds everybody that not everybody takes themselves so seriously and why don't we allow them to have as much fun as possible and keep it almost within a book and show people that this is also a way you can play golf and it doesn't have to be, hey, I'm teeing three off the tee, hey, I'm teeing five off the tee because you can't hit your driver straight. Hey there, Mod Golfers. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the innovators and influencers who are boldly shaping the future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Shane Bacon, who is a golf reporter with Fox Sports and host of The Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. Shane, thanks for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Now, Shane, when it comes to growing the game of golf, I put you in the influencer category here. With all the things you're doing in the media there, I know you you have a background in writing first and blogging before you got that face of yours in front of a camera. just want to take a step back here and give us a, a brief overview and a glimpse of how you've arrived to do what you do with Fox Sports today and a bit of your history there, Shane. I was a golfer. You know, I grew up um, playing junior golf and AJGA circuit and, and kind of obviously had aspirations to play professional golf and went to college in Arizona, not planning to play golf. And so I basically just started writing for the newspaper there. And I, I wrote some random club sports and I think I had like a, I don't know, it was like a like a field hockey beat or something. And um, I ended up writing a golf column one day and they were like, okay, now you can do golf. So I wrote for four years there as kind of a side job and had just always been around it. And then as people tend to do, I took a quote unquote real job out of college and I was working at a desk. I had no idea what I was doing. It was, it was awful. And one of my buddies one day said, hey, start a blog. Like you should write about golf. Like you're good at writing about golf. So yeah, I mean, it was kind of during the wild wests of the internet days where everybody had a blog and nobody really knew what to do with it. And so I wrote for a couple of years there and got a job to do some stuff at AOL when AOL was starting up with Fan House. And I went from Fan House, I, I wrote, I ended up writing about eight sports for, for AOL at the time, and it was kind of a side job, and then got a full-time gig with Yahoo, and from there it was kind of, you know, away we went. I mean, I, I worked for Yahoo, I got a job over at CBS when they first started Ion Golf, which of course Kyle Porter runs incredibly well now. After that, I ended up getting a, uh, my first TV job, my first TV gig came at a place called the Back Nine Network, which was this uh, startup that was, yeah. yeah, yeah, supposed to compete with Golf Channel, and so my girlfriend at the time and I moved from sunny Arizona which is just lovely, to Connecticut, which is cold, really cold, as I know you know that it gets colder the more north you go. I was, uh, indeed. I'm not sure I'd ever shoveled snow. I mean, I grew up in Texas, but we got through December and it was fine. And I was like, this isn't that bad at all. And then uh, I remember there was like January 3rd, this snowstorm came and then it was just snow for four months. And I'd get up at like 6 a.m. and go to the studio and write my scripts in like two jackets. It was an interesting experience, but it was great for me. I mean, it was I was doing the TV thing. I, I worked on every show for the most part, you know, in the sense of being on air with different people. And through that, I landed annoying adults. I always say this to kids, but timing is everything, especially when it comes to jobs. I mean, you know, you could be the perfect candidate for something and you might not land the gig. And I just so happened to be out of back nine the same time Fox was looking for kind of their last four or five people to join their initial Fox coverage when they got the USGA deal. And so I just got super lucky, went and played golf with Mark Loomis, who's my boss. And we had a great 18 hole day. And I think I lost him some money because I didn't play very well. And from that, he offered me kind of a side gig. And I mean, the first event I did for them was that 2000. Well, I, I did the four ball at Bannon Dunes. And that was the first time I kind of met some of the crew. And then that US Open at Chambers Bay, I mean, I was doing feature 
featured whole coverage with Robert Dameron for like eight hours a day. <laughs> we were wow. just in this little trailer in the middle of the TV compound doing the drivable par four and the par three uh, 15th. And um, every group that came through, we would just chat it up. And that was kind of the first one. And then it's progressed to a point where I'm, I'm getting to do a lot more cool stuff. And uh, it's been great. I mean, it's been, been a dream come true. This is something doing TV sports was something I wanted to do when I was like five years old. I mean, I would like record video on VHS of guys broadcasting national championship games and kind of like repeat what they were doing. So it was just kind of what I always wanted to do. And I've just been fortunate enough to to kind of land in the right spots at the right time. Now, speaking of doing cool stuff and having fun, I, I know that you love to create content that makes golf more fun. So I want to drill down into a couple of things that you're doing to help grow the game here. And you're also the host of the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon, your podcast. I believe you're about 72, 73 episodes in, been doing it for a year and a half. Can you tell us a bit about that, of why you decided to create a podcast and keep pushing that forward on a weekly basis? Yeah, it was. I wanted to do it for a couple of years, to be fair. I mean, I was an early acceptor of the podcast forum. I, I used to listen to, I mean, as, as most of us did, I listened to Simmons very early on when he first started with the podcast at ESPN. I didn't know what podcasts were. I, I, I remember not even knowing, I was like, do you download them on your phone? Like, I didn't really understand. Like, they didn't, it's probably like what my dad is now with podcasts. I was four or five years ago and we worked with Fox early on to get it going and it just kind of fallen to the, to the wayside as things tend to do. And a couple of years ago, we said, listen, we really want to get this going. And we got it up and running and I was out in LA doing it. But it was funny at the time, there wasn't really many golf podcasts. And just at about the same time, I think No Laying Up had already started. I kicked off. We had like Shipnut get going with his. And it just, they all started, bur and I think Shack House had kind of started right around the same time. So it, it went from basically zero golf podcast to this eruption of them right. in the landscape. But, you know, my thing has always been, I just want to have, much like much like you do as well, Colin, like I want to have a conversation with somebody that I'm interested in having a conversation with. If other people find it intriguing and interesting, that's great. But from Joe Buck, who dips his toe in golf here and there, but focuses more on the Super Bowl and the World Series. I mean, he's got so many big things going going to a Scott Van Pelt, to a Mike Breen, who I'm looking to have on in the next couple of weeks as the NBA gets going. You know, guys that maybe aren't necessarily golf guys, I think it's a good mix to have those people in just as much as you have a Justin Thomas or a Rory or a, a Rich Lerner. So that's just been kind of my approach is just to have people on that I think are interested. I think what they're doing is cool stuff. And hopefully people find it interesting. And if it's not the biggest name in the world, that's okay too. Well, I find it interesting if that's worth anything at all. So there you go. I'm, I'm a fan and a subscriber to your podcast. So uh, so yeah, keep doing those good things that you're doing over there with that. So with the Back Nine Network, it's too bad things didn't work out over there, but I, that's the, the core principle of what they were promoting there, making golf more fun and making it... Uh, you know, undoing a couple of buttons on the shirt there to kind of loosen it up a bit. I, I really love that. So you've been involved with other groups as far as content creation. Also, I realized that last year you hosted the 2016 Top Golf Tour. Can you tell us a bit about that and your connectivity to Top Golf? Yeah, actually, I, I take off in a day and a half for the 17 oh, in Vegas. Okay. There so you go. We're about to get back into that. But I mean, it was crazy. It started as an idea that they came to me about last year. And as things tend to happen, they didn't really know exactly how they wanted to go with it. But they knew that they had a big prize for two players. You know, it doesn't have to be two guys or two girls. It can be mixed or everything. And it was just kind of an open tour for people to go compete at. And I mean, the idea was Top Golf is a place to relax and enjoy golf. And this was supposed to be a place where two people could go to regional qualifiers and maybe land and land a free trip to Las Vegas at that and have a chance to win $50,000. Last year, they got a lot of tour pros, you know, mini tour players, that type. This year, they changed that. They said, no tour pros. Let's give this a real open feel. 
There's a team that's headed to Vegas that's two females that used to play. I think they played mini tour golf, but they got their amateur status back. I mean, there's a dad and son. There was a team that traveled to four or five different qualifiers in the Pacific Northwest trying to make it to Las Vegas. So what we learned this year was that the stories really started to ooze out when you kind of eliminated a little bit of just the touring pro. And those guys were great. I mean, the, the competition last year, they were so good. It was unbelievable. But I think that they were really excited about what will happen when Vegas on Sunday when we get the tour going. And I mean, this year, you know, we had updates every week you could find on YouTube. I was voicing these updates with this great video that the guys were shooting. And I mean, Top Golf to me, it's one of those ideas I kick myself about all the time for not coming up with it myself. It's so brilliant. I mean, people like to go to driving ranges. Obviously, they like to go hit golf balls. They like to hang out and drink beer with their friends. They like when sports are on. Why don't you combine all of these things in one place? My sister always kicks herself about the Build-A-Bear workshop stores right. where you take kids in and you build your own bear. I feel like this is my Build-A-Bear workshop where I'm like, how did we not think of this when we were 21 years old and we were at the range hoping that the range sold beer and we could hit balls into targets and compete against each other? So to me, it's, listen, I don't even care if it grows golf, to be fair. I don't care if people go from top golf and attach themselves to 18 holes of golf. I just like the fact that people can go somewhere and enjoy golf in a different atmosphere and in really a different circumstance. There's no judgment. And you know, something I've always learned when I take a newbie to a golf course, whether it be an old girlfriend that wanted to go hit range balls because she knew I loved golf, to just friends that were taking up the game because they were done playing softball or done playing pickup basketball. Something I've always learned is they go to the driving range and they're initially embarrassed. They're embarrassed that they can't be good so fast. What I love about Top Golf is really it's almost it's like you feel like you're at Planet Fitness. You know, there's no judgment. You go and there's people there that are going to be slapping it right and left. They're going to be laughing at each other. They're going to be making fun of each other for a bad golf shot. And that's okay. And I think that's something that I've loved about Top Golf is the arms are open to everybody. If you want to come here, we don't care how good or bad you are. And that's their secret there. And uh, the over 8 million people they had there last year, I think the stats say that almost half of them had never swung a golf club before. So no, it's amazing. They have created, I guess you can call it a, a convenient delivery system for the game of golf. And I, I agree with you completely. There may be some that kind of go through the funnel, a small percentage that then play traditional golf, play 18 holes and but this is one of the interesting things we talk about this on the podcast quite a bit that golf is now what we call it's a dial rather than a switch whereas before the traditional guard would say well either you play golf or you don't you play 18 holes and you card a score for your handicap or you don't play golf where now everything is loosening up like you referred to with top golf whether it's going to the driving range whether it's actually playing on a simulator there's other forms that are coming out too that we've had on the show too I don't know Shane if you're familiar with the major series of putting that's going to be uh, oh yeah yeah with those oh, guys yeah. like that's awesome I too and they're going to be in Las Vegas too so yeah Brad Faxon pumps that in my ear about 47 times a year so yes I know it about it but you know what what I love about kind of what you were saying with the dial is with golf if you think back to the famous Kevin Costner monologue during 10 cup where he talks about that ringing in your loins when you hit a golf shot in the screws for the first time or you've played enough and you're a 25 handicap but you hit that first high draw with your three wood and you're like oh my god that's what I've been trying to do but top golf you could have a 12 year old kid smacking golf balls and hits a couple good and goes this is awesome and then goes to another level with it but that's what you want you just want somebody swinging a golf club you know and then maybe they can figure it out 
And I don't want to push it down your throat. Hey, you should be playing golf. It's awesome. Because I do feel like people, when they get a little bit older, they take the game up. I've always found it interesting that there's been this obsession with getting young people into the game. And most of my friends didn't play golf when they were young. And they all play golf now. I mean, it does seem like a game that as you get a little bit older, you have a little bit more money. You've got a more secure job. You can afford going and playing for 60 or 70 bucks around. When that happens, golf becomes a little bit more accessible, really. And I mean, I think that's something that people forget about. How can we get eight-year-olds to play golf? Well, wait till they're 30. And that's what I've always said. I mean, if you wait a little bit, normally people will gravitate towards the game because, you know, an athlete wants to play something against somebody. And once the knees don't work as well, there's not as many guys that can play that kickball league or softball league or baseball league for that matter. They're going to move to some other sport. And a lot of the times it's golf one and tennis two. And that's what I love about golf is the older I get, the more I see my friends start to gravitate towards it. Yeah, and it's a, the other factor too, of course, is the amount of time that it takes and the time that you actually have. I still have young kids and in the middle of it, so uh, I don't play as much golf as I used to. I'm living that uh, that ironic, sad life here that now the more I get into the golf industry, it seems like the less golf I play. I know I, I follow what you do. That's here. the old moniker, right? Yeah, it's, it's brutal. Like I played three rounds this year. I'm an 18 handicapper and I ain't getting any better, believe me. So hopefully that'll free up in the uh, the years to come here. But yeah, Top Golf certainly allows that. You can go there for an hour. You can play for two if you want to. Same thing with uh, what Major Series of Putting is doing. It takes less than an hour to actually do this and it does create those storylines. I think you touched on this earlier, Shane, with the Top Golf Tour. It gets that opportunity to look at all the other validators and trends and patterns that are emerging in sport. You look at something like American Ninja Warrior and the backstories they have at the grassroots level. Then you cheer for someone. And I think what you're touching on there, Shane, with these tour pros that were crushing it at Top Golf on the tour there, that people couldn't connect with that from a fan base, from the storylines, where it sounds like now they've switched it around so there is more connectivity that it's like American Ninja Warrior. You can cheer for that person or even say, you know what, hey, you know what, I can be that person. You know, if I train like that, they started from nothing, I can actually be that person, which is really the connectivity you want to, uh, to tell stories like that. Yeah, something that, I, that I've learned the last three or four months, and a couple of my friends have talked me up on this, which makes a lot of sense, is for so long, especially me in my career, my focus has always been about the PGA Tour. When I've tried my best, and I feel like I do a, a decent job with my Clubhouse newsletter that I send out a couple times a week, and even with the podcast, is I try to get people from all walks. I want to have LPGA players on there. I'd like to have senior players on there. I want to have drive, chip, and putt kids on there right around the Masters that came on the Clubhouse that was a lot of fun to have on. I love having that type of stuff because I think there is this needed obsession with, I got to have these pro guys on. These are the guys we watch. But golf is so unique in the sense that Golf is the only sport. It's the only sport in the world where there's this whole other level of golf. And that is recreational country club, first tee, amateur golf, an obsession with architecture, equipment. I mean, look at all the websites out there about golf. I mean, there are dozens of websites dedicated just to equipment. And these people make money. And then there are websites dedicated just to travel. And they make money. And so I've had to almost readjust my thinking to golf because it's really hard for a regular golfer to watch Justin Thomas or Rory McIlroy play golf and it feel anything like what they see and do. But you can read about Streamsong or Sand Valley, or Bannon Dunes, or Cabot in Canada, and you can read stories about those places and see pictures, and that starts a whole different discussion amongst you and your friends. Hey, we got to go to this place. We got to check this out. We've got to make a golf trip here. Or hey, we've got to go to the new cradle at Pinehurst and, and play this park three or go see the loop. I mean, I just feel like golf, it's almost got like 30 chapters where most sports have five. You talk about the professional level, you talk about your favorite team, 
And that's the conversation. I mean, there's not really a lot of going out and playing fast pitch baseball with two 40-year-olds, but there's 40-year-olds that play in leagues all across the world every single day in golf. Well, that's a, that's a great insight there. I like that analogy there, that metaphor of the chapters there. And yeah, golf, uh, the, the book is very thick on golf. That is that in a good way. And that is true. So to follow up on that comment there, I know you're a big fan of amateur golf and about getting people out on the course and having more fun. I know you're a supporter also of the USGA Play 9 initiative, getting people out to just play it and it doesn't have to be 18 holes. So with that to kind of compress golf down, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on where golf can go with this. You may be familiar with the European Tour CEO Keith Pelley and what they did with golf sixes. Are you familiar with uh, their experiment with that? Yeah, I had Keith on the clubhouse earlier this year, just had kind of a conversation about where he wanted to go with all of this stuff. And he has a big theory. There's a war on Thursday and Fridays is what he calls it. And he just basically says that what's a regular golf fan or a recreational sports fan doing watching Thursday or Friday golf? How much fun is that? How much fun is it to say, I'm going to watch this first round of a, of a non-major why do I care? Why do I attach myself to that? I, I think it's interesting because it's an approach trying to make those days more interesting for the golf fan. The problem is match play is when golf is the most fun. But match play is some of the worst golf viewing on television in certain I circumstances. Agree, yeah. If you look at like a certain event, I mean, the match play this year in Austin down at the Dell, you got Dustin Johnson versus John Rahm. Yeah. That's awesome. Any golf fans watching that. They're going to be glued to the TV, those two guys. Beat the ball, back and forth, all that stuff. But if you get two no-names, now, and that's no knock to the no-names, but if you get two no-names, now the sponsors in the tournament and all that stuff are going to be a little bummed out. So I love what the European Tour has done. I think the PGA Tour can take a lot from it. I think they've tried some stuff. I mean, the team event at the Zurich this year, I think, was a huge success. I'd love to see a male-female team event, almost like the J.C. Penny they had back in the day. You hear so many old players talk about how much fun that event was and how they love to see that return. I think that gives a different look at it. I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about even the President's Cup that just passed, making it six men and six women on each team. How awesome would that be to see played? I just think that there's a level of that. And I mean, you ask about amateur golf. One of the cool things about getting to do all these amateur golf events for Fox is you get to tell these people's story. You know, everybody knows who Jordan Spieth is. Everybody knows who Ricky Fowler is. They know their parents and where they came from and what college they went to. Nobody knows much about these amateur players. So you get to really tell the story. I'll go sit down with those kids at the U.S. Amateur while they're eating lunch just to talk to them for two or three minutes. And they're receptive. They like it. I mean, they know they're getting some exposure on television. They know that this is a big, big moment for them in their career as they move forward to hopefully professional golf. So for me, it's some of my favorite weeks of the year is getting to do that amateur golf because you're really getting to paint the picture for the viewer. Maybe it's not 5 million people watching, but the true golf fan is watching and you're getting to see a kid that maybe started at the first tee. You're getting to see a kid that's granddad gave him his first set of clubs or watch Tiger Woods play golf. I mean, for goodness sakes, now you're seeing guys that watch Rory yeah, play golf. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how young golf is now. I mean, they were, oh, I saw Rory play and I took the game up. That's how quick this is moving and how fast paced this is. So for me, the amateur golf explanation as a broadcaster is some of my favorite weeks of the year. And I think if you really go down the line to a Joe Buck, a Paul Azinger, a Brad Fax, and a Jew Inkster, they would all really agree with that. Well, that, that is interesting. So I want to touch on the team play you mentioned between the President's Cup and the other formats of team play that seem to be resonating with fans. And it seems like the players also. I know with Keith Pelley, he's looked at golf sixes and the team play and compressing that down a bit. So do you see with the Olympics and the way that's gone that there is in the future with golf more team events that will help grow the game? 
I mean, I, I would love to say yes. I don't think so. I don't think outside of maybe an addition of, as I said, kind of a male-female team event at some point during the season, I think money drives all this stuff, let's be honest. And I just feel like the fear of that overtaking maybe a stroke play event, it scares people. It scares the big wigs. It scares the sponsors. It scares the people trying to make money on these golf events because, again, they get so scared of a dud championship or a dud final. So for me as a golf fan... I would love to see that. Yes, absolutely. Let's show more of it. Let's have it. Let's bring the skins game back. Let's do certain things like that that make golf fun. Show night golf. Do those types of things. But I just think that for better or worse, when you show 72-hole stroke play, you have something on the television all the time to sell the viewer. And if Jordan Spieth is tied for 50th, you still get to show him. And if Rory McIlroy is tied for 44th, you still get to show him on Saturday and on Sunday. And that fills the gap. That fills the four and a half, five hours you have for television coverage. So until they can figure out a way to make that, I don't know, expanded or lengthier in the sense of a Saturday or Sunday team championship event, I just get scared. Honestly, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the round robin style World Cup format that the Dell does just because I think in match play, match play is you win and you move on you lose and you're gone. And I think that that's more fun than what we see now where you play the same guy, the same people in your quote unquote pod three times. But at the same time, I also understand that they have to do that because they don't want to see their big names get knocked out. You look at something like March Madness. March Madness is one of my favorite sporting events. And that one and done, that pure competition that you have with that, where there is no second chances, there is an incredible storyline with that. But I also understand your take on that, that with golf, that, yeah, that with sponsors especially, and the people that are running the tournament and broadcasters, yeah, the, the big name is eliminated on it's, Thursday. It's, it's, that does, That's not so good for ratings on Sunday, is it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's so weird, Colin, like your point about March Madness. And it's so funny that like certain sports attach themselves to the underdog story and certain sports hate it. And I feel like yeah. golf hates it. You know, like golf doesn't like when Rich Beam beats Tiger Woods. It's like golf roots for the guy to be there, but they want the superstar to win. I talked about Tin Cup. I mean, if you think about the moment in Tin Cup where, of course, it's a movie, but there's that production truck moment where Roy McAvoy's making a run at the U.S. Open. And I think the producer in the truck saying, I don't need another story like this. I don't need a, a Joe Schmo. I want a superstar. I want a big name. And it's funny to think that in March Madness, you love the 12-5 upset, but at the Dell match play, you hate it. It's just so weird how that works. I wonder if it's just simply because it's an individual sport. Tennis is going through that right now. Tennis has a little bit of an epidemic on its hand because very soon, Serena's going to retire and Roger Federer's going to retire. Annie Murray, Nadal, these guys are getting a little bit older. And then who are the superstars they attach themselves to? At least golf has a very young contingent moving through. I mean, if you think about Jordan Spieth and Lydia Ko and, and Justin Thomas, these players are very young still and they're going to be young for yeah, a number of years absolutely and golf certainly does have a, have a bright future i think on the professional level there although you talk about rooting for the one that's not the underdog it still amazes me looking from the outside in the fixation and fascination with tiger every swing he'll take on the range even today it's headline news so uh, not that i want to get too much in, into tiger he's done great to grow the game and it's been fantastic of what he's done of course but it, it seems like there is that certain number of people out there that just don't want to let the whole tiger thing go and, and move on to the new guard. Oh, I, I talked about this last week on the clubhouse with Randall Chambly on, and I asked him a very similar question. I said, we're obsessed with Tiger still. We're still obsessed with Tiger in 2017. I mean, he hasn't won in four years. He hasn't really been a thing in golf in two and a half, three years. I mean, we saw him play one good round 
at a small field event playing by himself at a course he knows with wide fairways last year. It's so strange that it's still the conversation not only about Tiger, but about when he's going to return, if we're ever going to see him again, whatever they like to say, you know, return to dominance, which I think that takes away a bit from what we have right now. We have such a deep level of great golfers in this world. I mean, you saw the first player from Venezuela on the President's Cup. You saw a guy from India play in a second President's Cup. You see Hideki Matsuyama, who's become this force to be reckoned with in professional golf, who very soon is going to win a major championship. And then on the American side of stuff, you've got these young Americans that love playing together, love playing in these team events, are unbelievable in the sense of ranked players in the world. And really, it's out of this lull we had where we had kind of a weird time where, you know, the best players in the world were Luke Donald and Lee Westwood and Adam Scott. And not to take anything away from those guys, but it really has all of a sudden boomed. Yet Tiger hits a nine iron and we all freak out again. It's so strange to me that that's the waves we go down and up again. You know, what I say to golf fans is if Tiger returns, that is awesome. But let's just stop thinking that he's going to. I feel like when we think about the return of Tiger Woods, it takes away from the product we're seeing right now out on golf. And that's not just men's golf. I mean, women's golf is as good as it's ever been right now. And you're seeing the LPGA produce these talents that can go out and shoot 28 under, 30 under. All these players are just so unbelievable. When you go out there and watch them play, they're beating drivers, 265, 270, 280, 290 at times. And it's not just three of them. I mean, you're talking about 50 players that are able to really get it out there. So golf's in a really fun place if we just opened our eyes a bit and stopped looking back. Well, it's interesting there. You talk about diversity and inclusion in golf here, and then we see that on the LPGA Tour and the other international players that you mentioned on the men's side there. It's interesting. I had Steve Mona, the CEO of World Golf Foundation, on the show. With all the outreach programs that they do and the initiatives, certainly growing that at a grassroots level. And I wanted to ask you this, Shane. You talk to hundreds, if not thousands, of young people about the game of golf. I'm curious, do any of them, let's say young as in between, let's say 16 and 30, do any of them even mention Tiger or even care about Tiger at all? I mean, I think that the, the idea of Tiger grows. It's like the fish you caught. I mean, every time the, every time you, you tell the story, <laughs> right. the fish is a little bit bigger. You know, I mean, I think the players that, you know, young players that didn't get a chance to watch Tiger in his prime, you know, they see golf's greatest rounds on Golf Channel maybe, and that's when they get to catch up on what Tiger did. But to really grasp his consistency at being great, that's what's so impressive about Tiger. It wasn't his wins. He won a ton. It wasn't his majors. He won a ton. It was the fact that he was consistently in the conversation. And you'll flip on the 2012 Masters, random Masters, and Tiger will be fourth going to the final round. And he didn't win, but he was there. And I think that is where you look at it, and that's where you'll see a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old that goes, man, this guy, the story of Tiger was just so incredible. And I think that's what they look at now. It's not just his stats and his records. It's what he did to the tour and what he was able to do all the time and never really mess up. It's a little bit to me what I look at when I look at Jordan Spieth, and I hate the comparison because it's so impossible to compare people to Tiger Woods. But when I look at Jordan Spieth, the one quality that I think separates Jordan Spieth from everybody else on the men's circuit right now is that Jordan Spieth can find a way to get the ball in the hole. If he's having a bad round, he can save it. If he's having a great round, he can make it better. He'll make the 20-footer on 17, and he makes the 8-footer on 18. And I just feel like there's nobody else in golf right now that can do that. And I mean, you know, think about the Travelers. He hits one of the most awful wedges of the year on the 72nd hole in regulation. He had 107 yards, hits lob wedge in the bunker. I mean, a professional golfer doesn't miss a golf shot like that. Gets it up and down, gets in a playoff. Doesn't hit another good golf shot. So, I mean, you're thinking four, five, six bad swings in a row and then makes the bunker shot. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just that willpower to figure it out. 
that I see Jordan Spieth has. And Tiger had that virtually at every event he played in. Yeah. And I mean, that is what is just so unbelievable about him. So when you think about young people, they go, wow, he won 14 majors. That's crazy. But I think the idea of what Tiger was able to do consistently is the thing that amazes them and marvels at almost every golfer that plays. And it's something that I always hear professionals talk about when I talk to them about Tiger Woods is that he just had a gear that not only did they not have, but they didn't even understand. Right. And I guess you really look at Tiger, especially with the younger audience now, he's reached legendary status. He is the kind of that iconic legend. Yeah, the more they go back and watch shots, like that classic one at the uh, the 16th hole of the Masters there, you'll know what year it is. I can't remember, but that classic one where it just rolls down and trickles in, that Nike moment where the ball just stops and hangs the lip and falls in there on that uh, on that chip. Oh, 2005. Oh, the, be the best golf shot in the history of the world, maybe. I mean, it, like at the moment, you know, again, like that moment. It, and I always say the putt at Tory. You know, at 08, it's bumbling down the hill. It's hitting spike mark after spike mark. And that thing can kick offline. I mean, it could kick offline and not go in, even if he hits the perfect putt. And somehow it goes in the hole, and of course he wins it, what, a 91 holes against Rocco Mediate. It's those types of moments. Well, yeah, you talk about these moments, these experiences. You're talking about Jordan Spieth there. I, I like the celebration afterwards. It's probably just as famous this year as the, as the shot of the year that he hit there. And back to Keith Pelly for a second. When I had him on the podcast, he looks at what they're doing with the European Tour now as being an entertainment experience company that happens to have golf as the product that they create, as the engine that drives the whole thing. So with that, I, I want to kind of drill down a little bit with what you're doing over at Fox Sports with golf and with, uh, with the U.S. Open. Watching those broadcasts there, you guys are certainly doing things a bit differently and kind of pushing the envelope even on the graphics and even the way that you're going about with the pacing of things. How are you finding the culture over there as far as taking some risks and the innovation there? What's it like? It seems to me on the outside looking at this that you guys are comfortable pushing the boundaries and trying some different things to connect with a new audience. It's been cool. You know, that that was something that, that Mark Loomis and the team there really preached early on was that we're going to be the most innovative in the sense of technology of anyone in golf. And I mean, you really saw that at Chambers Bay with so much shot tracer. And then you saw later that year in 15, all these other networks started to do more and more of it because fans demanded it. They wanted more of it. So with us, it's trying to show golf as A, an athletic sport. It's trying to show golf in a different perspective using the technology that we have at our hands. And now with the team that we have in place, I think Paul Azing is the best analyst in golf. I think that Curtis Strange is the best on-course person in golf, and I don't even think it's close. I mean, these are perspectives you're not going to get. You've got a major champion that almost always seem to say exactly the right thing at the exact right moment. It's unbelievable. And I'll look over at him when he's saying it, and my mind's just blown that he's able to look at something on the television and explain it in such perfect pretense. It's unbelievable. And then you've got Curtis Strange on the golf course that's been in almost every moment you could ever imagine in golf and able to paint that picture, especially at a U.S. Open when, you know, the guys won back-to-back -back U.S. Opens. You've got Joe Buck, who's really the voice of sports over the last 25 years, telling the story. It's just been really fun to be a part of the team. And really, I think the first year helped all of us because it brought us all together in a sense. Chambers Bay was, it was our second event we'd ever done. And we're doing a U.S. Open. And you think about this season. The first event the Fox team did in 2017 was the U.S. Open. Could you imagine an NFL crew rolling out and going, hey, by the way, guys, the first game y'all are doing is the Super Bowl. And you'd be going, wait a minute, we don't have any prep. We don't get any chance to do anything early. You get tossed right in. It's go time. And you've got to be on your, on your game because 
it's the biggest crowd and the biggest eyes we'll have all year long. You're describing a new golf course in Aaron Hills. You've got a field that doesn't have Tiger Woods in it, that doesn't have Phil Mickelson in it. When all of a sudden you've got some of the biggest names who struggle early, you know, Dustin Johnson didn't play well and Rory didn't play well and John Rahm didn't play well. And so there's obstacles that you have to deal with. But I love what we do on the production side. I love what we show and the pictures we show and the ability to lay out these golf courses in different ways and use different technologies. Yeah. And what I really love so much about it is it's not like we throw that stuff aside for these other events. We show the shot tracer at the U.S. junior girls and the U.S. junior boys and the U.S. women's amateur. And we don't stop just for the big event in the U.S. Open. If you go watch 17-year-old juniors playing against each other, you're going to see shot tracer and trackers and top tracer and all that stuff throughout the event, which I, I just think is so cool that we bring that into those events as well. No, and it does amplify the experience for both the audience that's there live and also for the broadcast audience at home, of course. Had a, a similar observation when I was covering the World Long Drive Championships about a month or so ago. We went and spent a couple of days and did a podcast based on that. And just with the technology now, the price coming down, the fact of being more mobile and just being able to track that and trace it, it just engages people so much more just as far as the stats. I know you're a bit of a stats guy too, so I'm, I'm sure finding that balance with the graphics there so you're not over overwhelming the audience, but you're also educating and, and engaging them. And I'm sure you guys over at Fox Sports are just scratching the surface and you're going to be rolling out all kinds of other innovative things in the years to come here on the golf side. It's, it's interesting you say that because I battle with that a lot with the stats is what stat do people at home really care about and to what stat do people at home even understand? I think that there's so many stats now because people are trying to dive in and be different where it's like, what does ball speed really mean? What does launch angle really mean? Does anybody understand it? And I think that at times you could almost have a Dustin Johnson drive. You show the stats and the launch angle and the numbers adding up. And when it ends, have it stay on the screen and compare it to what a 50-year-old 15 handicaps is. Because at least you could quantify it and make sense of it. Right. Because as I've said earlier, golf doesn't make a ton of sense to people when you look at it in certain lenses, especially when you look at it like Dustin just hit that 385. Like that doesn't make sense to somebody that's playing regular golf. 385 is a par four that they're hitting driver seven iron on. So it's just, I think sometimes the stats can almost be overwhelming. So I do like that it's a little bit more simplified with what we do. Yeah, and I'll give World Long Drive credit for that. And they've tried many things and experimented about how much information is graphics and information overload that they've just stripped it down there that it's club head speed and it's actually ball speed and so then they can start to compare these things and the way they've done it graphically that's for people that are even non-golfers because that's what they want to start pulling into the broadcast to that and it means something but I really like your idea there of comparing it to the average person there because then it does make more sense and you can really see how good these guys and these women are I know we're a long drive some of those women were uh, beaten at 360 yards it was crazy what they were able to do there and it was quite impressive so hey Shane I know that you have have to go work on your own podcast there with the clubhouse so I only have you for a few minutes more so last thing I want to ask you here since we are about the future of the game here I want you to pull out your crystal ball and like to hear your thoughts on where you think golf will be or what you would like to see whether it's kind of a, some big hairy audacious idea or small little tweaks both on the professional side the recreational side the broadcast side in 5 10 20 years here, here's your chance what are your thoughts of where you'd like golf to go 
You know, we've talked about Keith a lot. I love the idea of changing up as many regular season, non-big events as possible just to change up the format a little bit. I don't want to do it to every single one, but I think you could have four or five a year where you have the round robin golf sixes, you have an eight-hole match, you do something to bring in life to early rounds. I'd love to see that. And I'll tell you, I would love to see a little bit more of the genders coming together, like the LPGA, PGA, Web seniors, finding a way to make it to where you could make those events competitive and interesting and have them where it's a big deal for both parties to make it where if you don't finish in the top 10 you're out the next season and these people are in the purses go up you bring in some good sponsors to help out I think of the amateur side to me it's just finding little ways to add value to practice whether it be a range where I mean listen top golf is top golf but a driving range with grass that has goals. I mean, so you're not just there mindlessly beating golf balls. I think that's something that, that turns people off as well is the idea that I've got to go practice to get better. Well, I mean, a lot of people think hitting range balls is the worst. Nerdy golf people like me love going to the range and beating golf balls. But for the most part, like a friend of mine who's kind of getting into golf doesn't want to go to the range for an hour and a half, especially because he doesn't really know what he's doing. So to give practice a little bit more meaning for the recreational golfer, I think would really help water the plant that's already growing. Because, I mean, I think that's what happens sometimes is people take the game up, they don't see much improvement in a year, year and a half, and they go, well, this sucks. I don't want to do this. I'm just going to go back to playing pool or go bowling. It's at least finding a way to improve people's golf game. And simply put, my, my last thing, and it's already happening, which I love, is around golf course design. And it's just making golf courses more fun and playable. I mean, we went through this phase where every golf course built was impossible. I mean, it was impossible for single-digit handicappers, you know, to go out there and have any fun. I'll tell you, I played Sand Valley in Wisconsin right before uh, we did our media day at Aaron Hills. And it's a core Crenshaw. It's a new course. It was so much fun to play. And it was a destination. You'd go with your buddies. You'd go with your, your significant other. You'd go spend a few days there at the cabin and play golf and have drinks and have a nice dinner. Yeah. But you could play 18 holes without losing a golf ball. And then I played Stream Song Black three weeks ago down in Florida. It's the new Gil Hans there. And it was playable and it was fun. I mean, it's challenging. There's definitely holes that are challenging, but you're not losing two sleeves of golf balls. When you go play some of these old style designs that were so much fun, and then you went through this phase where it was every golf course was tree lined with huge rough and 7,800 yards, that was the wrong approach, I thought. And if, if I was an up-and-coming golfer and I had to go play those golf courses, I wouldn't want to play the game. So I think the design ideas are important is to remain on the path we're on right now where it's to make golf as simple as possible, to make it as fun as possible. And then the last thing I would do is I would have amateur rules brought in where if you hit it out of bounds you get to drop it if there's a stroke limit you can pick it up if you can't hit it out of a bunker you can take a drop and, and it be a shot penalty or do something to where there's an amateur line out of rules where it reminds everybody that not everybody takes themselves so seriously and why don't we allow them to have as much fun as possible and keep it almost within a book and show people that this is also a way you can play golf and it doesn't have to be hey i'm teeing three off the tee hey i'm teeing five off the tee because you can't hit your driver straight necessarily yeah, there's nothing worse spending six hours and spending $100, and at the end of it, you just feel like crap. <laughs> exactly. Know? It's like, where's the fun in that? And you make some very good points here. Before I let you go, uh, Golf Digest just had an article they released a couple of days ago talking about short courses and also challenging courses. So even the trend in course design of par threes or executive courses that are challenging, and you can get around in a couple hours. And like you said, you can do it after dinner if you live on the course there for an hour and a half. And the other interesting thing you mentioned 
conversation there as far as out of the range and top golf they've gamified it they've gamified the experience and i think more driving ranges and practice facilities need to embed gamification into what they're doing there just to make it more engaging so before i let you go i found that was interesting i was about to ask one more question and you really touched on it there and that was about the rules and i know they are changing the rules with the rna and the usga that are going to be coming out but i play a lot of pickup basketball still three on three and the rules we play for that are not what you would play in a formal 40-minute basketball game so do you think even taking it a step further that there should perhaps be two different rule books for golfers kind of like the equivalent of playing three on three with your friends there's a golf version as the gateway you think that would be helpful or do you think that could be problematic it's funny. I've been preaching this mulligan recall game that I played this summer with Brad Faxon, who he like lives and dies by it, where it's this different formatted game you can play against your friends and it's really fun. And then the no laying up guys have been preaching this wolf hammer game that they played a few months ago. They say, you know, they love it. And I played it with a couple of the guys when I was out in Florida with them. And I mean, there's a lot of rules in, in that game, but right. your focus goes away from fairway green make putt to every hole's its own experience. And I think that is something that we could almost publish a, a golf game pamphlet or something and hand out to golfers or to have it online and say, don't go out there and just play match play. Don't go out there and play a $5 Nassau where you're doing the same thing every time. Try a new game every couple of weeks. It's almost like a workout. You know, you're going to go to the gym and do back and buys and, and that's what you do. And then you go home and then the next day you do chest and tries and sometimes you got to change that up or your muscles get used to the workout to me it's like if you're a golfer that has a group of friends that are accepting to new things which hopefully most people are at this point find a new game once every month and play it play a different game once every two times you go out and just give yourself a different look at it because if you play mulligan recall which is one of the games that i've played lately with some friends that's really fun you don't ever really post a score because you're taking mulligans and occasionally you're getting recalled on a shot. And for some people, that's scary. Oh my God, I'm not going to post a score. What about my gen? What about my handicap? Well, that's okay. That's fine. You're out there enjoying yourself. That is more important than where your handicaps go in and if it's going up or down. And honestly, the handicap system's kind of lame anyway. You're a 4-5, but the guy might shoot 85 and he might shoot 70 and you know you don't really know where it's going to go and you rarely shoot your number you feel like. And yeah. I'm just not a huge handicap guy to begin with. People always ask that. What's your handicap? That's supposed to define who you are as a player. I just don't really understand that topic of conversation. So I would say just to try to find some different games to play and to take golf a little less seriously if you're not trying to play it at a professional clip because it's really supposed to be fun. We as amateurs watch professionals and, and especially younger players watch a professional and they look at it and think that's how I have to act on the golf course, right. which is not the truth at all. It's really, really not true. They're playing for a living and for money and for prestige and for championships. And guys like Jordan and Rory and Dustin are playing for history and where they're going to sit historically in the game. We're out there playing to get away. And I think that's something people need to remind themselves is this is a vacation from life, from your job, from family, whatever. And if you're not out there, if you're throwing clubs and getting pissed for five hours, are you really enjoying yourself? I don't see how that's enjoyable at all. I played with a guy a couple of days ago, and he, he's a good player. I mean, it was, it was a money game, and it was an important thing, but I mean, he was pissed the whole time. When you get done with this, then what do you go do? Then do you go cheer up? I mean, I used to get mad. To me, that's the thing. I think golfers could have an attitude change for the most part and just go out there and just remind themselves to have fun for 18 holes. <laughs> it's weird, right? Have fun and relax. What a concept. I <laughs> have to agree with you completely. On that note, I was playing with the foursome that we had, and one guy is the, the best 
best of all of us, but about a three, four handicapper and our other buddy that can never break a hundred. And he's getting mad and throwing clubs. And our one friend finally turned to him and said, you know what? You're not good enough to get that mad. Exactly. <laughs> I, I totally agree. It's like, I've got friends of mine that are maybe say they're a 14 handicap. Okay. And they'll hit a wedge on the green and be mad. And I'm like, listen, man, don't take this the wrong way. But if you hit an iron on a green in regulation, that is a really, really good thing you did. I don't care if it's 30 feet away. That's good. That's better than you normally do. So you should be taking that as a positive. Again, I feel like they see it on TV that you're not you're disgusted you didn't hit it five feet. Golf can continue to remind itself to take itself a little less seriously. I think that is that if you're gonna take one thing from this, it's just to remind yourself that this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be exciting. I actually have taken a scale back on me making fun of white belts or whatever that we used to rag on because I'm like, dude, wear whatever you want. I don't care. You wear a tank top, you wear a button-up, you can wear a suit for all I care when you play golf. As long as you're enjoying yourself, that is all I really care about. Grow the game by taking it a little less seriously. I think we got the name for the podcast episode right there. So thank you for that, Shane. <laughs> so on that note, Shane Bacon, host of the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon podcast and also golf reporter with Fox Sports. Before I let you go here, Shane, want to give yourself a little social media love. Where can our listeners listen to you and watch you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Shane Bacon, which is pretty easy. All of the stuff that I do, we post on ShaneBaconGolf.com, which is our website that has some pictures of me swinging and all that good stuff on there and then my podcast i try to roll it out about once a week normally midweek uh, we'll have a new one up probably this afternoon i'm sure this will post a little bit later but we'll have a new one up this week and the following weeks with some players and some different people around the game and it's called the clubhouse with shane bacon you can find that on itunes or soundcloud or stitcher or wherever you look for podcast and uh and colin i appreciate it listen man i gotta tell you something you've got to play more golf three times and it's what October 11th is ridiculous. Brutal, I know. Well, you know, I've played at Top Golf more this year. I'll tell you that the Top Golf thing can do no wrong, and, and I hope that the, the World Series of Putting, all that stuff that comes up, gets people excited about it as well. Because this is a, a pretty fun game, and you can get out there and enjoy it. I, it's so funny how much when I'm around other sports and other sports people, they ask me about golf. I feel like that's like what they want to talk about the most. They're like, so how's this place? Like, where have you been here? I just saw you went here. And you're like, yeah, man, you're like a broadcaster for college football. You're like a huge deal. Like, what do you care about what my opinion are on a golf course? That's hilarious. Good stuff. Okay, well, hey, I'm going to end it there. Shane, thanks so much for your time today. And I've got a feeling you and I are going to cross paths very soon. So good luck with everything you're doing. And thanks for the time today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Anytime, Colin. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fox Sports golf reporter Shane Bacon. You can learn more about Shane and all the great things he's doing in the golf space by going to the episode notes and his guest bio page. On season two of the Mod Golf Podcast, we're hitting the road to cover innovative golf events and uncover the compelling stories as we go. On episode one, we cover the transformational growth of World Long Drive, and next we travel to Las Vegas to cover the inaugural MSOP Major Series of Putting Championships. I look forward to sharing those stories with you on future episodes. To learn more, go to our website, modgolf.fireside.fm where you'll find links to the topics and content we covered in this episode. And please go to iTunes to rate the show and give us some feedback to help us continually improve the Mod Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Colin Weston. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Mod Golf Podcast. Join me next week when I speak with Carlos Sugic, who is the tournament chairman for the 2018 Waste Management Phoenix Open. Bye for now.